Previously on Breakdown. Georgia, they said the Secretary of State took the law in his own hands. He changed the election laws unlawfully. A federal judge said no. I accept the federal judge even though I don't agree with it. Fraud. They said there's 66,000 people in Georgia under 18 voted. How many people believe that? I asked, give me 10 and had one. I think that number one, President Trump won on the 3rd of November. The, uh, the things that he needs to do right now is he needs to appoint a special counsel immediately. He needs to seize all of these Dominion and these other uh, voting machines that we have across the country. He needs to go ahead and uh, prioritize by state and probably by county. Fulton County, Maricopa County as an example. I said, good John, now I'm gonna give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great effing criminal defense lawyer, you're gonna need it. And then I hung up on him. The 16 fake GOP electors have been told where to meet under the Gold Dome, Georgia's state capitol, on December 14, 2020. They were also told not to tell anyone why they were there or what they were doing. But it didn't take long for some keenly observant journalists to figure it out. And now, the Fulton County Special Purpose Grand Jury investigating former President Donald Trump and his allies is certainly interested in what they did. Welcome back to Season 9 of Breakdown, the podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that takes you inside Georgia's most important cases. I'm Bill Rankin, the AJC's legal affairs reporter. And I'm senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. As promised, we're going to take a close look at the 16 Republicans who were carrying out a plan largely concocted by attorney Kenneth Chesbrough. He wrote a legal memo about what happened in the 1960 presidential election in Hawaii involving John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. The race was so close, a recount was underway. Even so, Nixon claimed victory and the governor certified him as the winner. As the days ticked closer to the Electoral College vote, the Kennedy campaign put forth its own slate of electors, just in case. And as it turned out, Kennedy won the state by 115 votes. Chesbro's memo urged the Trump campaign to organize slates of such electors in the seven swing states that Joe Biden won. Trump's attorneys Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman latched on to Chesbro's idea and worked hard to carry it out in Georgia and the other swing states. Coming up, we will take you into the room where it happened and introduce you to some of those fake electors, including a former University of Georgia football player who is running to become the state's lieutenant governor. Plus, a look at the possible crimes this group could be charged with and the prison time that could come with it. This is episode 16, The Phony Slate, of season nine of Breakdown, The Trump Grand Jury, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. On December 14, 2020, 
16 prominent Georgia Democrats showed up at the state capitol to cast electoral college votes for Joe Biden. Among them were Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams and Congresswoman Nakima Williams, who succeeded the late John Lewis. It was the first time a Democratic slate cast electoral votes in Georgia since 1992. Little did they know, 16 Republicans had different plans just a floor below. What those Republicans did eventually made them targets of a criminal investigation into election interference by the special purpose grand jury. Rudy Giuliani is also a target. He, John Eastman, and Kenneth Chesbrough testified before the grand jury after being issued subpoenas. So did Boris Epstein, a campaign aide who said he was involved in the elector plan. Meanwhile, at least two of those Georgia GOP electors have been served subpoenas by the Justice Department as it conducts a parallel investigation. These electors have good reason to be worried. They could ultimately be indicted, tried, and convicted. And one of them could be Georgia's next lieutenant governor. We'll let you hear from three people who were there that day. One is our colleague, Greg Bluestein, who you heard from in an earlier episode. Another is Richard Elliott from Channel 2 Action News. The other is George Cheedy, a local columnist and reporter who runs his own website, The Atlanta Objective, and he used to work at the AJC. Let's start with George. He saw something coming when he visited the state capitol about three weeks before the day of the Electoral College vote. Tensions were high. News organizations had called Georgia for Biden roughly 10 days after Election Day. But Trump's allies were bitterly contesting the results in court as recounts and audits were underway. The rhetoric from the White House was intensifying, which brought things to a boiling point on the ground. I don't know if you remember, but the scene there was kind of crazy for a while. Um, You had Proud Boys and a group called the Groypers, which is this racist, uh, and it is, they're overtly racist white nationalists and other groups like that out on the steps of the Capitol. And uh, you had Alex Jones in an armored personnel carrier doing circles around the Capitol, exhorting people to resist tyranny and to take over and to, like, you know, his language was interesting. And my impression was they were going to try to disrupt something on December 14th. So I decided to show up on December 14th, like, to bear witness. Here's Greg describing the scene. At that time... There had been a fence erected around the perimeter of the Georgia State Capitol. There was worries about protests. The Democratic delegates entered through a back room, a back door, uh, and they were shepherded upstairs to the state Senate under heavy armed guard. There was only a few people allowed into as observers into the state Senate chambers. Something caught George's attention. Republicans, he recognized, walking into a room downstairs. And I saw one. I walked into a room and I'm like, that's suspicious. So I look around, like, I wonder if the electors are going on here. I pulled out my camera, my cell phone, and I walked into the room with the camera going. And I said, hey, what's going on? And uh, there was sort of a a moment. And then uh, a woman said, we're having a meeting. And somebody else shouted, he's got a camera. Uh, And somebody starts to usher me out of the room. And I asked, what kind of meeting? And she says, it's an education meeting. And then they close the door and then they post a guy in front so that nobody else can walk in like that. And I'm like, oh, that was it. That was it. Because I, I recognized some of the people in there, uh, including um, uh, David Schaefer, 
who is the uh, Georgia Republican Party chairman. Richard is up on the third floor next to one of the building's two enormous atriums looking down below. And then we looked down to the second floor. And at the bottom of one of the grand staircases is a meeting room. And we saw the door opening and closing and men and women in suits and dresses were were going in. And we began to recognize some of them as prominent Republicans, including um, Alpharetta State Senator Brandon Beach we saw go in, I saw go in. We saw a former state senator, David Schaefer, and uh, current uh, Georgia GOP chair go in. And we knew, we knew something was up. We didn't know exactly what it was. And word began to filter to us that this was an alternate electors meeting. And we knew that this was exceptionally unusual. Greg sees the same thing. They're going into room 216, which has two massive wooden doors. I kind of peek in and try to see what's going on. I was like, why are all these? I really did not think there was going to be a phony slate. I kind of peek in to see what was happening. And um, someone at the door said, oh, we're just having an educational meeting. And I'll never forget that. I was like, okay. And I knew something was up, but I also didn't have time at that moment because I had to be upstairs. Richard was torn. Cover the official vote upstairs or the phony slate in room 216. Then he found out he could get a video of the Democratic electors vote from the Senate press office later. So we went immediately down to that uh, meeting room. And I remember thinking at that moment, I wish I could remember my U.S. history, my U.S. Constitution better, because I don't think this is legal, but I, I can't remember enough from my college days, to know that for sure. Richard is a well-known figure at the state capitol. And when he shows up with a cameraman? So uh, we went into that meeting. Uh, Nobody stopped us. No one said a word to us as we came in. And we just started uh, recording video and saw everything that happened. Richard then does what most journalists do these days. He's recording, and I am busy tweeting. In the Senate chamber, Greg takes notice. And I see my friend and colleague, Richard Elliott, over at WSB, take a picture from inside the room saying Republicans are having their own slate of electors. And I just was, I was stunned. You know, we had heard rumblings about that in other states. And at that time, I think we might have even seen a shadow slate, a phony slate, whatever you want to call it. But I didn't think it would happen in Georgia. I just didn't think that the Georgia GOP electors would go for that. Richard describes what happens in room 216. It felt business as usual which is, uh, again, why we were all kind of confused. Uh, There were no grand speeches. There was really nothing said that I can remember. And then they pledged their support for Donald Trump. And then they went over and they signed the paper, uh, pledging that support. And then it was all over. And then, um, you know, David Schaefer came out and did a quick interview with us. and, And that was that. The document they signed says they are the, quote, duly elected and qualified electors for president and vice president of the United States of America from the state of Georgia. The document certifies that the group organized at the state capitol at noon on December 14, 2020, that David Schaefer presided, and that all 16 cast their votes for Donald Trump for president and Mike Pence for vice president. It's virtually identical to documents signed by GOP electors in other swing states won by Joe Biden. 
notably the certificate signed by false Republican electors in New Mexico and Pennsylvania, have qualifiers. Pennsylvania's, for example, says the undersigned were duly elected and qualified electors, quote, on the understanding that if, as a result of a final non-appealable court order or other proceeding prescribed by law, we are ultimately recognized. Here's what Schaefer told the news media after the signing ceremony at the Georgia State Capitol. Um, we were asked by the president's lawyers to hold this meeting to preserve his rights under the pending litigation. Because the president's lawsuit contesting the Georgia election has not been decided or even heard, we held this meeting to preserve his uh, rights. Had we not held the meeting, then uh, his lawsuit would effectively uh, be mooted. So we held this uh, meeting today to assure that if he prevails in the lawsuit, that they'll be elected. It was some 18 months later when we learned Schaefer and company were explicitly directed to keep things hush-hush. This June, an email from Robert Sinners surfaced. During the 2020 elections, Sinners worked as the Trump campaign's Georgia Elections Operation Director. In the email sent December 13, 2020, Sinners told the fake electors he needed their complete discretion. Quote, Your duties are imperative to ensure the end result a win in Georgia for President Trump, will be hampered unless we have complete secrecy and discretion. Sinners told the electors to explicitly keep the Capitol's security guards and media out of the loop. He instead instructed them to say they were meeting with two pro-Trump state senators, Brandon Beach or Burt Jones. Several legal observers we've spoken to believe the email could help Fulton prosecutors more easily establish criminal intent of the fake electors, and potentially others closer to Trump. Sinners later found out that Trump campaign lawyers Justin Clark and Matt Morgan told the House Select Committee they believed the elector plan had no legal justification. In his own testimony before the committee, Sinners said he would not have participated in the scheme had he known that at the time. We were just, you know, kind of kind of useful idiots or rubes at that point. You know, a strong part of me really feels that it's just kind of as the road continued and as that was failure, 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 that 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 got formulated as what do we have on the table? Um, let's just do it. I'm, I'm angry. I'm angry um, because I think I think in a sense, you know, no one really cared uh, if, if people were potentially putting themselves in jeopardy. Journalist George Cheedy would later testify before the special grand jury about what he saw that day. And he's glad he decided to come check out what was happening the day of the Electoral College vote. I am goofily, stupidly proud of that. Um, the, uh, my powers of observation being what they were that day. Um, because it's, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a happy little footnote in history now, which is, which is nice, I guess. Greg says at the time, it seemed surreal. Everything at that point following the election was beginning to resemble a three ring circus. It was hard for some observers to grasp how serious the actions were. Of course, that became like the dominant political narrative for the next year beyond. But at that moment, you know, we were in this sort of uneven world where we weren't sure how big of a factor that these lies would play. And to see not just the state GOP chair, but also 
a number of leading, I mean, these, these electors were, were very prominent activists and party figures and elected officials and, and others who were also taking this path. That was, that was a sort of pinch me moment, like, okay, this is really happening. Richard has this to say about what happened in room 216. And, you know, at ground zero, at the scene when this is happening, you think, well, you know, that sounds reasonable. All right. We don't know. Now, you know, that, that case was thrown out immediately because there was nothing to it. And now we see it in context of all of these other false electors uh, in other states and pressure being put on, uh, on uh, state lawmakers to also put pressure on the governor and to put pressure on Brad Raffensperger. And it all kind of fits into place. But at the time, at the time, you're looking at one piece of a jigsaw puzzle. And it's a sky with a cloud. And you have no idea where it fits into the whole thing. Well, now, two years later, we're beginning to see that landscape and where it does fit into that. And that's that's very um, unusual and unique. For the record, in court filings, lawyers for 11 of the electors have insisted their clients did nothing wrong. They cited as precedent the 1960 contingent Democratic electors from Hawaii. In Georgia, many of the fake electors were leaders within the state GOP. There was Schaefer, the party chairman. He received one of the Justice Department subpoenas. There was also Joseph Brannon and Vicki Townsend Consiglio, who were treasurer and assistant treasurer. Ken Carroll, assistant secretary of the state GOP. Carolyn Hall Fisher, vice chair of the party. Daryl Moody was chair of the Georgia Republican Foundation. There was Mark Amick, who sits on the foundation's board, and Sean Still, currently a Republican nominee for a state Senate seat. Other conservative activists included Gloria K. Godwin, co-founder of Georgia Conservatives in Action, John Downey, former district chair of the Cobb County GOP. There was Kathy Latham, former chair of the Coffee County GOP and who turns out was in the county elections office during the data breach in January 2021, which is also a focus of the special purpose grand jury investigation. Atlanta businessman David Hanna also served as a GOP elector, as did Mark Hennessy, who owns Metro Atlanta car dealerships. Others were Atlanta lawyer Brad Carver, who has received a Justice Department subpoena as well, and C.B. Yadav, a South Georgia small business owner. Four had stepped in at the last minute to replace a handful of officials who decided they didn't want to or couldn't serve. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Hip-hop is a product of Black people. It's a product of Black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. We haven't yet introduced you to perhaps the most prominent fake elector, But if you've been listening to us this season, you'll certainly know his name, Burt Jones. He's a state senator and the Republican nominee for lieutenant governor. He won his primary without a runoff, and the polls show he has a lead heading into the general election on November 8th. 
He's facing Democrat Charlie Bailey, a former Fulton County prosecutor. Jones grew up in Jackson, Georgia, about 60 miles south of Atlanta. His father, Bill Jones, is a former school superintendent who also served as a state senator. He built a successful wholesale fuel distribution company that owns a variety of businesses, grocery stores, convenience stores, shopping centers. Jones worked for his dad, then opened his own insurance brokerage firm. Jones attended my alma mater, the University of Georgia. He tried out for UGA's football team as a defensive back. Bert played for me when I first got to Georgia, 2001-2002. He finished 2002 on the SEC championship team. Uh, Not only was he a walk-on who earned a scholarship, but he also was named permanent team captain. That's UGA's former coach, Mark Richt. In that SEC championship game against Arkansas, Jones made a big play early in the first quarter. Dogs trying to rush off the corner, and they block the kick, and it's rolling across the field, down around the eight or the nine. A dog picks it up, tries to fight over the five. We're pushing and pushing down to about the two. It was Jones who picked up the block punt and took it to the Arkansas two-yard line. The Bulldogs scored on the next play. They'd go on to win the SEC championship game 30-3. to 20 years since the last title. But the champions of the Southeastern Conference 2002, the Bulldogs of Georgia. Jones makes note of his time as a Georgia Bulldog in campaign ads. I'm Bert Jones. When I played for Georgia, we won the SEC championship. Here's the block. And it'll be first and goal, Georgia. Not just because we had great athletes, but because we were bonded together as teammates, united by that G on our helmets. He's also reminded voters that he has Trump's full endorsement. President Trump has enthusiastically endorsed Burt Jones for lieutenant governor. We're delighted to be joined by your next lieutenant governor, a man I've known for a long time, a man who really did fight very, very hard for election integrity, Burt Jones. Great job. Trump even cut a video for Jones prior to the Republican primary. Hello, Georgia. This is your favorite president, Donald Trump. And it's my great honor to give a complete and total endorsement to Burt Jones. He's a fantastic guy. It's no surprise that Trump would be endorsing one of his fake electors. It's also no surprise that Jones' Democratic opponent for lieutenant governor would be making that one of the focal points of his campaign. He's engaged in a politics of hate and division. It's a politics that says representative democracy is not worth fighting for. It's a politics that says we get to choose whether we win or lose races. That if we lose races, that we can come in and falsely claim and be a false elector for Donald Trump to try to overturn an election. It's a politics that stands against everything that American values stand for. He's not a patriot. He's not a true American. That was attorney Charlie Bailey. Here's Jones at a recent lieutenant governor debate sponsored by the Atlanta Press Club. He's asked by Raul Bali, a politics reporter from the public radio station WABE, why he continues to believe what he did on December 14th was appropriate. 
you know, the fact is the matter, we had court cases that were going on at the time, and it was a procedural move that we knew that we're not going to move forward if uh, if those court cases did not move forward. Uh, this had some that had been done in 1960 with the Kennedy-Nixon race uh, when they disputed over the state of Hawaii. You should look that up if you don't know about it. Bailey soon comes back with his own question to Jones and gets to follow up after Jones gives his answer. Mr. Jones, you served as a fake elector for Donald Trump. You, in secret, forged a fake electoral ballot. And not only that, you got on your daddy's plane the day before the insurrection, flew to Washington, D.C. with a letter in your pocket um, to urge the vice president not to count the electoral votes. All things that were aimed at overturning an election. So my question to you is, are you finally ready to take responsibility for your actions and apologize to the people of Georgia for those undemocratic actions? Well, here we are again, uh, a different race, but same accusations. I've got a, a opponent here uh, that uh, wants to attack my family, wants to attack me personally. Uh, and I think I just answered the question uh, that uh, Raul gave me. I think it's the same thing you just asked me there. But, uh, you know, that I, I'm wanting to talk about the issues that, uh, that are concerning Georgians right now. And uh, my opponent is uh, wanting to uh, talk about other things. So what we heard there is someone that has continued not to take responsibility for his actions. And I didn't hear an apology to the people of Georgia for trying to throw out their millions of certified votes. You know, as a former prosecutor, I've seen this a number of times with people that have done something that's wrong. They want to talk about anything other than what they did. And the truth is, Mr. Jones, what you did was un-American and unpatriotic. You don't get to decide for the people of Georgia who, who serves them and who is their elected leaders. That's their choice, not yours. Jones did fly to Washington on January 5th, 2021, the day before the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. He brought with him a letter for Vice President Mike Pence from State Senator William Ligon, who chaired a Senate Judiciary Subcommittee and became one of the most prominent election skeptics in the Georgia Capitol. The letter asked Pence to delay the count of electoral college votes for 12 days to allow for more investigation into the 2020 presidential election. It says hearings in the House and Senate with Rudy Giuliani and other Trump campaign attorneys, quote, have already uncovered extensive irregularities and fraud. The letter cites the doctored security video from Atlanta State Farm Arena, and it includes the thoroughly debunked claims of voter fraud of cases filled with ballots being pulled out from under a table and counted illegally. Jones was to give the letter to Pence during a dinner at the vice president's residence at the Naval Observatory in D.C. Jones even tweeted out a photo of himself and Pence, both masked, at the event. Except he didn't end up giving Pence the letter. Our former political columnist, Jim Galloway, found out about Jones flying up to Washington with the letter. Galloway, who's now retired, was under the assumption at the time that Jones gave it to Pence. But Jones clears that up right away. You didn't give it to him when you had dinner with him that night? Nope. 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 Still got, it. Still got the original copy. Yeah. You're looking at it in a folder right here on my car seat. Okay, all right. Because, you know, I almost didn't. I almost, because after I had a conversation with some of his people and, and the vice president, and I didn't ask him directly. I was just, I was just, I was just reading him, you know. I was just reading his body language and everything else. And I was like, well, they don't need, they don't need to, don't need to give him this, you know. Like I said, I could just read, uh, read him and, and tell, and, and, you know, tell that it 
Before letting Jones go, Jim asked the question I'm sure you also want to know the answer to. I've got to ask you this. I mean, did you go to the Trump rally the next day? Yeah, we left that night. Mm Mm-hmm. This summer, Jones was sent a target letter by Fulton prosecutors informing him he could be indicted. All 16 of the Republican electors got one. But Jones' case is different because the DA's office has been disqualified from investigating him. Jones's lawyers filed the disqualification motion when they found out that Fulton DA Fonnie Willis had hosted a fundraiser for Charlie Bailey on June 14th. Willis and Bailey were once colleagues in the Fulton DA's office. At the time, Bailey was in the Democratic runoff for lieutenant governor, while Jones was already the GOP nominee. And just a few weeks after the fundraiser, he was named a target in the case. Of course, we can't forget what Judge Robert McBurney told Willis during a hearing on the disqualification motion. It's a what-are-you-thinking moment. Um, The optics are horrific. If you are trying to have the public believe that this is a nonpartisan, driven by the facts, But if we are trying to maintain confidence that this investigation is pursuing facts in a nonpartisan sense, that that strikes me as problematic. McBurney didn't take long issuing an order disqualifying the Fulton DA's office. The Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia, which helps the state's prosecutors, now has the responsibility to find someone else to investigate Jones. Here's the council's president, Pete Scandalakis he's suggesting that they likely won't be moving anytime soon. It is well documented that this is a special grand jury that is investigating the issues before it, and this grand jury cannot issue criminal indictments. Therefore, pending further analysis, it may be premature to appoint a criminal prosecutor at this time. Given these parameters, it may be best to allow this special grand jury to conclude this portion of the investigation before a conflict prosecutor becomes involved in the case. So whenever that does happen, it'll be after the general election, which is certainly a big relief for the Jones campaign. Jones was leading Bailey by 10 percentage points in an Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll in mid-September. A more recent survey, conducted by the AJC and the Georgia News Collaborative, showed that Jones's lead was slimmer, 44% to 39%, and that 14% of voters were still undecided. With a libertarian candidate also in the mix, it's very possible the race heads into a runoff. This may be off of Jones' plate for now, but say he wins his race and a new prosecutor is appointed. Jones could be under active investigation while serving as Georgia's lieutenant governor. And if this new prosecutor believes Jones broke the law and takes the case to a grand jury? We may have our state's lieutenant governor under indictment while in office. Other than Jones, most of these electors have kept quiet about their participation in the electors' scheme in recent months. But we recently got a peek into the mind of one of those participants, Daryl Moody, as part of a leaked batch of texts from the phone of former U.S. Senator Kelly Leffler. The texts were sent to the AJC anonymously last week, and it's not immediately clear how the messages were obtained. But they were collected in a document with the name of a vendor typically used by law firms to respond to subpoenas. Moody texted Leffler on December 13, 2020, the night before the electors met. Quote, Since Biden was certified as the winner, I hadn't planned to go, he wrote. Quote, Since I'm technically an officer on your leadership team, I wanted to make sure I'm making choices that reflect well on you. Please let me know if you have any input. 
A few hours later, Leffler texted campaign staffers, quote, I let him know we had no issues with that. The morning of the 14th, a few hours before the electors were slated to meet, Moody responded, quote, I'm not super thrilled about trying to vote as an elector, but I've been told we could lose important national support for our Senate races if we don't, so I hope it's helpful. The last thing we need are bitter people telling Georgians to boycott voting. Moody didn't respond to the AJC's requests for comment, and a Leffler spokeswoman called the messages, quote, a desperate attempt to distract voters 20 days from the election. But my colleagues Greg Bluestein, David Wickert, and Tamar confirmed the veracity of other exchanges with four people who were involved. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. We've combed through Georgia law to see what possible crime the fake electors face. The one that sticks out is formally titled, False Statements and Writings, Concealment of Facts, and Fraudulent Documents in Matters Within Jurisdiction of State or Political Subdivisions. Legal experts say a false writings or statements charge is the most likely fit. If convicted, you face up to five years in prison. Here's Atlanta lawyer Buddy Parker, who's been following the investigation. He's a former federal prosecutor who's tried many high-profile cases. It's a violation of the criminal code of the state of Georgia for uh, an individual or individuals in this case to knowingly and willfully falsify, conceal, or cover up by any trick or scheme of material fact. And trick or scheme can simply be by the creation of false writings or representation or statements made in connection with the matter involving an agency of the state government or of any county or city or other political subdivision. Parker says the problem with the phony slate of electors is that Biden had been certified the winner in Georgia and that the official slate of electors were carrying out their duties that same day. And then you come behind that with a separate second set of alleged electors falsely saying that they are the actual electors of the state and falsely representing that Donald J. Trump won the popular vote of the state of Georgia, and then falsely uh, and then transmitting that to the Congress of the United States and the National Archives, you know, creating alleged competing slates of of electors that, you know, you can't have two competing slates of electors, and there's only one that's the official slate. And this is a effort to create by trick, scheme, or device false writings to thwart or prevent the peaceful transfer of power. If charges are brought, prosecutors will have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the electors both knowingly and willfully violated the false statements in writing statute. Parker says the former, knowingly, should be easy to prove. And they knowingly, in individual manner, made their way to the state capitol 
and they knowingly met and they knowingly sat in a closed room and they knowingly discussed among themselves why they all found themselves to be where they were on that day at that time. And they knowingly signed a document that had been prepared that falsely represented that A, the individuals were each an official elector of the state of Georgia. They were not. And B, their votes were cast for Donald J. Trump at, uh, in the Electoral College, which they were not because it was not an official certified document. Willfulness gets into intent. It's mens rea, which in Latin translates to guilty mind. Willfully is generally defined to be to intentionally disobey or disregard the law. In other words, you not only know what you're doing, but you willfully do it to disobey or disregard the law. As you've heard, David Schaefer and Burt Jones say they participated as alternate electors on the advice from lawyers for the Trump campaign. But saying you thought what you did was okay because a lawyer told you so doesn't always carry the day. The advice the lawyer gave you had to be objectively reasonable. Right. Embezzling thousands of dollars from your company and then saying your lawyer told you it was okay to do it isn't going to hold sway before a jury. I don't read it as a defense. We asked Atlanta appellate attorney Brandon Bullard to weigh in on this defense. But simply because I did it because because someone else's law, like the, the, the president's campaign lawyer told me to. Uh, that that's not enough to make out the defense to make out a, any kind of defense uh, because it's just like that's not a justification uh, and, and certainly trying to help someone else. So I'm trying to give him legal options by committing a crime that is is really not going to fly. I wouldn't think. But if I know that I'm signing a false statement about something within the authority of of state government, then I've committed false statements. And well, my lawyer told me, or somebody else's lawyer told me to break the law, I would not advise someone to go to trial on that theory of defense. It's just, it, it, it's rough. If the fake elector case ever goes to trial, the defendants very likely will try to show that all the facts about what was happening were out in the open and that the attorney they were relying upon knew all the facts too and that the attorney advised them it was okay to be doing what they were doing. If they can do this, the trial judge could give what's called a good-faith reliance on counsel instruction to the jury before it begins deliberations. Here's Parker again. Which might assist a jury in believing the electors had a good-faith belief that what they were doing was legal. Good-faith belief negates willfulness. That is, specific intent to do that which the law forbids or to disregard the law. You in good faith believe what you're doing is lawful. It negates the argument or the finding of willfulness. Whether or not they did what they did in a good faith belief or whether or not they did what they did willfully is ultimately going to be a jury question. Parker also says, if the fake electors go to trial and want jurors to think they were following the advice of counsel, they got to testify on their behalf. Which, of course, means they'll be subject to cross-examination, 
We would expect some of the prosecutor's questions would be like, did the lawyer who told you this was okay also warn you about the possibility some might see this as criminal behavior? Or did you happen to talk to any other lawyer who told you this was a bad idea? We also checked in with former Metro Atlanta District Attorney Danny Porter. He agrees with Parker. What my understanding of the case law on false writings is that the false writings have to have some legal effect. You know, they, you know, it can't just be that I send you a letter that says, you know, the, your kids are ugly or, you know, or something like that. It can't be just a, a, a false statement that has no effect. So I'm, I'm just thinking through whether sending it to the National Archives is considered to have a legal effect, and my initial reaction would be yes, that it would. They wanted to have something, you know, it, it's all quasi-official, but but because um, it's kind of like, you know, Trump, Trump saying he can declassify documents by thinking about it. You know, that's kind of the same thing. Well, we, if we put it in the National Archives, then it's then it's official. And you go, no, it's not. And so my initial impression would be that it could form the basis of the charges. Some other potential crimes that might be on the table. Forgery, criminal solicitation to commit election fraud, and conspiracy to commit election fraud. One other thing. False statements are considered predicate acts under RICO. You remember, the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. It's designed to ensnare higher-level figures in a scheme. Here's Bullard again. But the idea here is that if that's the theory, and it may well be the theory, you have these individuals who are liable for their 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 false statements, if, if indeed the state can prove that they committed false statements. But then because they made false statements, the all of the individuals who worked together to get them to make false statements for the purpose of, of securing power in the federal government or maintaining power in the federal government, especially that they were, as a matter of fact, not entitled to, uh, that is going to you know, satisfy the state RICO statute and, and subject those, especially those higher level actors uh, who, you know, who, who, are, who you have a hard time prosecuting for one discrete offense or another, um, to, uh, but it's going to expose them to serious state time. We asked Danny Porter, should the fake electors be worried? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, certainly the, the, it looks like they're going to face an indictment. Um, now, you know, whether they're worried about that, I don't know. You might remember from episode 14 that Fulton prosecutors are trying to disqualify Holly Pearson and Kimberly burroughs Debreu, the two lawyers representing 11 of the 16 Republican electors. We quoted several legal observers who saw that as a sign that the DA's office might be trying to strike immunity or plea deals with some of the fake electors in exchange for dirt on some of the bigger players. Danny Porter says he thinks that talk might be slightly premature. I think it's probably too early at this point because they don't really know what their charges are yet. And and so I, th- I think it's a little early, but certainly that that's got to be on people's minds. Bullard says it's hard to tell if we're at a point in the investigation where immunity and plea agreements are on the table. That's because there's a lot of information in the DA's legal filing that was redacted. 
While courts tend to grant requests to break up teams where lawyers represent multiple clients in a case to avoid conflicts of interest, prosecutors still must prove they aren't just doing this willy-nilly. Brandon Bullard says the state needs to know there is some real potential for a conflict and that deals are ready to be put on the table. And it can't be as well, we might offer these people, the individual clients. That's, that's not enough. Your Honor, we are prepared to make offers to these, these clients and, and we, cannot, we cannot do that. That's probably enough. So the question is, how far has it progressed? If it has progressed so far as to, um, as for the offers to be to be imminent, then, then maybe we do have a, we do have an issue. If it is, we want to preserve our strategic options. Probably not. It's probably premature. Before we go, we have an update on Lindsey Graham's appeal. Graham had asked the federal appeals court in Atlanta to enjoin the special grand jury from questioning him until his appeal of U.S. District Court Judge Lee Martin May's order was exhausted. Well. On October 20th, the appeals court denied to stay, saying Graham had, quote, failed to demonstrate that he is likely to succeed on the merits of that appeal. The court said Judge May's order preventing prosecutors from asking Graham about his official legislative business was protection enough under the speech or debate clause. It was decided by a panel of three judges, Charles Wilson, an appointee of President Bill Clinton, and Britt Grant and Kevin Newsom, both of whom are Trump appointees. Denying the stay means the court is saying Graham must testify before the special grand jury. But, as we predicted, this isn't over. The following day, Graham's lawyers appealed the court's ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court. Of course, we'll be keeping track of that, too. Next, on Breakdown... And the president said something to the effect of... I don't want people to know we lost, Mark. This is embarrassing. Figure it out. We need to figure it out. I don't want people to know that we lost. As always, thanks so very much for listening. Breakdown sound engineer is Shane Backler, and our podcast program manager is Jay Black. Thanks to our presentation specialist, Pete Corson, our editors, Jennifer Brett and Dan Kleppel, our managing editor, Leroy Chapman, and the AJC's editor, Kevin Riley. You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. And if you really want to support local journalism, particularly our journalism, please subscribe to the AJC. Be safe and take care. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Tamar Hallerman. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean Breeze. Tropical Beach, Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on.